Hi everybody, Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Well, um, it is good to be with you tonight. Um, I, I just, I just want to be upfront. I'm quite looking forward to next week and starting a new series. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's been quite heavy. It's not getting lighter. Uh, and so we are going to finish this series. Next week, we are doing something called Core 4, where we're, there's four foci for us as a church next year. I'm very excited to dig into that as we uplift and inform and, and look towards the vision that we have this year, what we believe God wants to do through our church. How good is that? It is really good. More good than you just gave it credit for. However, that's a much more appropriate transition into what I need to talk about next, which is trigger warnings. I'm not really a big fan in general of trigger warnings. I, th- I think it probably says something about our lack of cultural courage that we need them all the time. But tonight we actually do need one uh, because tonight we tackle some of the toughest imaginable ideas, reprehensible, truly reprehensible behaviour and things such as sexual violence. If, if you have children that are in the room, uh, it, it's totally up to you. They're really welcome to go into kids' ministry if that's a choice you'd like to make. Um, this, this will be, it'll, it'll all be appropriate. Like, I'm not going to use inappropriate language or anything, but it is, there's some hard things. There's some really hard things we're going to be reading out of Scripture today as we unpack. This is the story where David, the man named as being after God's own heart, hits the moral low point. It is the story about the abuse of power by one of God's most honoured and successful kings. And the story of Uriah's wife, as she's listed in Matthew's genealogy, is one that should cause us all to take pause. So Uriah's wife, what's her story? Let me give the broad outline based on the teaching text. As we heard, in the time when kings go off to war, King David didn't. He sent his army on without him under the leadership of his general, Joab. And while lazing around at home, and the ESV translation literally says he was sitting on his couch, He goes to his rooftop, which is the highest in the city. The the temple hasn't been built yet, so the palace has the highest rooftop in the city. And he looks around and he sees a beautiful woman bathing at night naked in her yard. Now, everyone bathes naked, and this is the ancient Far East. This is what would happen. People would bathe outdoors where they could. But David sees her. The seeing is not a problem, and he likes what he sees and he keeps looking. So he sends messengers to bring her to him, even though he quickly finds out that she's married. They sleep together, she falls pregnant, and so he quickly calls her husband, Uriah, home from the front. And after talking with him, he he has spent some time with him, and then he sends him home to be with his wife, says, go home, sleep with your wife, you know, just enjoy yourself, you're home. And Uriah says, I I can't do that. The rest of the army is out in the front lines without me. That that, that would be dishonourable. And so he sleeps with the servants at the front door of the palace instead. So David's panicking, but he gets crafty. He sends a letter back home with him to give to the general. Uriah hands it over to Joab. Joab reads it, tells him, put Uriah at the front lines, have him killed. So he does so. Uriah is killed. His wife becomes David's wife. It's a conspiracy to murder, murder all initiated by this adulterous king. But God is not blind to this. He doesn't miss it. The prophet Nathan comes and he confronts and condemns the king, leading to David repenting of his sin, but his child dying. And he turns and worships the Lord, comforts his wife, 
She falls pregnant again, and this time they have a son, Solomon. And Solomon goes on to become one of the great kings of history. That's the basic overview of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Anybody spotted any problems yet? What I gave was a fully honest biblical account. And I did not mention the woman's name once. So why don't we just flip that around for a second, if we can, Sam. In fact, she doesn't even seem to be the main character in a story in which she's the central character. We barely hear her name. We don't hear her voice. So what is her story? Well, Uriah's wife is named Bathsheba. She is fairly young. Some commentators suggest around probably 19 to 20 years when David, who was probably around 45, sees her. She was likely the granddaughter of one of David's advisors. And she's the fourth woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. And the final one before Mary, Jesus' own mother. Out of all the women in the line of Jesus, she's the only one not to be named by her own name, but instead by David's sin. She's the woman with the least agency of all the women in Jesus' genealogy. Tamar, brutally mistreated, but actively participates in creating her own future and coming into the family of God. Rahab has everything going against her culturally, economically, vocationally, but she was a faith-filled opportunist and she saw an opportunity and she took it. Ruth suffers a personal tragedy, but has resilience and makes her own decisions about what to do next. Even Mary, who is pregnant through God, has more agency. We hear her in the scriptures say, yes, Lord, let it be as you have said. Bathsheba never has this voice. She never has this agency. The text paints her as a person whose main identity is her beauty. She's also the only one of these women who doesn't get to tell her own story in any way. This is painted as David's story. Now, yes, David is one of the central characters in the biblical narrative, but Bathsheba's erased. She's just gone. Even her dead husband speaks more than she does. She has no voice, no agency, seemingly no choices. And this leads us to one of the most difficult discussions in all of the Bible. And that's saying something, given some of the topics we've talked about in the last 12 months, even the last four weeks. How is David the man after God's own heart? And this is the genuine trigger warning part. For those who have experienced sexual abuse, just please take this carefully and gently. How can David be a man after God's own heart? Did he rape Bathsheba? This is a deeply contentious conversation. And I guess it should be. It should be handled very gently and carefully. Many point to, the, some biblical commentators point to the family links between David and Bathsheba's grandfather to suggest there might have been some familiarity or the likelihood that she lived extremely close to the palace to suggest that, in fact, it was not that case. In some cases, people have gone as far as suggesting that Bathsheba actively seduced David. Now, this, at best is ungenerous. At worst, it's just a different form of abuse. This is not because our understanding of such things has changed, though it probably has, culturally, but because that's not what the Bible tells us. And we're actually here to hear what the Bible tells us about what happens in this narrative. This is what the Bible actually says. In 2 Samuel, the writer spends two whole chapters painting David as a sinner and Bathsheba as a woman without personal agency without the capacity to make choice here. This is why Uriah's name is mentioned in the genealogy, because it highlights David's evil. Just a few notes on David's sin from Scripture. It'll be up behind you. In verse 
1, chapter 11, verse 1, when kings go off to war, where is David? He's at home on his couch, not at war. He's let someone else fight the battles for him. Verse 3, he sees the woman bathing naked. Now that is actually okay. He can't control necessarily what he sees. He can if he's off at war instead of being at home where he's not meant to be. It's what he does after that. It's not the glance, it's the second glance. It's not just the second glance, it's the choice he makes after the second glance. He hears she is married and then she sends to, he sends to go and sleep with her anyway. Verse 4, Bathsheba had been purifying herself with her period. After her period, the writer is inferring that she takes Hebrew purity and therefore purity towards God very seriously. David clearly, based on his actions, does not. One is pure, one is impure. Verse 6, David attempts to deceive Uriah. Now, the narrative as you read it sounds like Uriah is just one of his soldiers. He's not. He's one of David's mighty men, one of 30 men that was particularly close to him, his greatest warriors. David at least has been around Uriah and his wife a lot of times. He is not unfamiliar with these people. He's actually David's friend. You read that in 2 Samuel 23, chapter 11, verse 13. David goes out of his way to get Uriah drunk. Verse 14, David arranges his death, basically murder for hire. And in chapter 12, verse 7, the prophet Nathan outs David as an adulterer and murderer, saying it was like the owner of a large flock had stolen the one precious lamb from another shepherd and then murdered that shepherd. Everything positions David as the sinner and Bathsheba as the sinned against. And I want that to be really clear. There's no question that David is shown in Scripture not in a cultural lens, in Scripture, he is shown to be the sinful one. Bathsheba is shown to be the victim. We clear with that? We good with that? Yeah. Okay. The only difficulty we can find in any way that might be a hiccup for some people in the Bathsheba story is that the Bible is rarely silent on the voice of victims of abuse. Usually, in fact, you'd be surprised at how often they get a voice. In fact, the very next chapter, 2 Samuel 13, is a horrific and blunt account of this happening. David's son Amnon assaults his half-sister, who is very vocal about telling him not to do this for a variety of reasons. And in the light of this, and in the light of these recent um, stories that we've been hearing of Ruth and Tamar and Rahab, these bold women who take their future by both hands and drive towards it, there is a temptation to some people to listen to the story of Bathsheba and not hear abuse being communicated quite as clearly. But while we don't hear her do that, we don't hear Bathsheba refuse David, can any among us seriously believe that she has a choice in the matter? That the king sends for her, sends men to go and bring her back to the palace, tells her what's happening, to refuse the king. How's that going to go for her? What, she's going to call her husband to help her? No, her husband's on the front. He can't do that. Even if he did, probably just get killed by the king. In a male-dominated society such as this one, there is no question this was no consensual affair. And to hammer the obvious point home, simply not voicing your objection to a person of power does not mean you consent. We don't get to hand wave this act. We don't get to overlook it. The Bible does not allow us to. It's a horrific abuse of power by David. He arranges a murder. He forces a woman to sleep with him. And I don't want anyone in our church to walk away from today mistakenly thinking that Bathsheba had any choice in the matter. She did not. Why am I spending so much time clarifying this matter? Well, because it matters a lot. It really matters a lot that we give voice to the voiceless as the people of God. And I think there are two key questions that should crop up 
that it forces us to ask, that are kind of always in the background for many of us as we come towards a relationship with God. And we, and we do want to ask, but sometimes we're afraid of. The first question is this, can David really be forgiven for such a horrific act? And the second question is this, if he can, does God truly care about the victims of crime like these? Let's look at the first question. In Australia, one in five women in their 20s has experienced sexual violence since the age of 15. That doesn't count sexual harassment. It doesn't count child abuse. It doesn't count anything happening to women 30 and above. These are separate categories. This is, to put it mildly, not acceptable. It's a horror. And one of the main reasons this continues to happen is because people doubt the testimony of victims. There are many reasons why they do, but ultimately it enables more sexual abuse. It creates fear and silence for victims and it creates an enablement to perpetrators who will get away with what they can get away with. What we do seem to be able to infer from the Bible is that Bathsheba is a fairly passive person. I don't say there's a criticism. It's a personality trait. Some people are more passive, some people are more active. The other women we've learned about in the genealogy of Jesus seem to be very active, driven women. Bathsheba, maybe not so much. But it does not make her experience invalid because, in fact, it is what the Bible is telling us has happened. Yet alongside this horrific act, we hear about David. David, the man after God's own heart, which sounds great when you say it by itself, but when you unpack that and then say it again, it sounds pretty grimy, doesn't it? Like It just almost sounds ironic, like a bad joke. We, we hear, though, in all of this, clearly about David's forgiveness by God. Clearly. It is so clear that David has been set free from this act. How does this happen? How can it? David doesn't even seek forgiveness until he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. Where is God in that? Well, the confrontation between Nathan and David is critical. Prophets during the time of Israel, and frankly forever, their job is to speak truth to power. Some of that is to look into the future and to, and to say, this is what God is doing, watch out. But again, it's speaking truth to power usually. And prophets are usually coming to kings and saying, this is what you need to do. Do you know what happens to them? Quite a wide variety of things. Sometimes they live, sometimes they're thrown into prison, sometimes they're beaten, sometimes they're killed. Anything could have happened to Nathan, anything. It was a deeply courageous act to have a vision from God accusing the king of adultery and murder and then to go and confront David with it. I just want you to realise how courageous Nathan is in this story. Kings before and after David have imprisoned and murdered prophets for doing this and speaking truth to power. David does not. This is critical. When confronted with his sin, David confesses to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't hand wave it. He doesn't pretend it didn't happen. He confesses straight away. If David denies this accusation, would he have gotten away with it? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's the king. He has all the power. That was not the nature of David's heart. The New Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin puts it this way. She says this, David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, which he wrote after this event, was acceptable to God because of his broken and contrite heart. Joyce Baldwin doesn't argue against David's crime as a woman herself and a biblical scholar. I imagine she feels no particular urge to defend David. But her point is that it was not David's feelings of guilt 
Right, just hear that. It's not David's feelings of guilt that set him free, but his confession of sin and heartfelt repentance that see him forgiven. His sin goes public, so public that we're still talking about it right now. Very, very public. David needed action that showed his repentance. Otherwise, it's just a feeling of guilt. And you know what I mean, because we've all had things that we've done them and then going, oh, I feel really bad about that. And then we feel bad for a bit and then mostly it goes away. And we kind of forget about it because life goes on. But David, in order to have repentance, it's not a feeling of guilt. It's a 180 degree turning away from sin and back to God. That's what David needs to do. How do we do that? We show fruit that is in keeping with repentance. We do actions. We show character that shows repentance has happened. God doesn't specifically demand an action. Right? It's what's going on in our hearts. But without it, it's like the Apostle James says that our faith is effectively dead. So if you say, yeah, 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 no, nah, I definitely, nah, yeah, I'm really sorry. But then you keep living the same way. Are you? Probably not. You probably felt guilty for a bit. I believe that. But are you repentant? No. Otherwise, you would have tried to transform. You would have received the transformation of God. We'll get back to that. This is the gift repentance, though, brings to the perpetrator of a crime. Is it the chance to genuinely turn away from sin, not just feeling guilty, but show change through action? And the forgiveness needed by David could only be offered by God. In Psalm 51, he says this really strange line, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil. Now that's clearly wrong. Well, that's definitely not true. Uriah is killed. Bathsheba is violated. But only God can offer full forgiveness. He's not just talking about that forgiveness we need brother to brother, sister to sister, but the forgiveness that comes when I have sinned and I have broken and destroyed the order of goodness that God has put into creation. And I need the forgiveness that only you can bring. David knows that he has sinned against God. And so in the Lord's Prayer, we hear Jesus echoing a way to model this in our own life. He says this, he says, We need to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. He tells us to pray like we need forgiving even more than the people that hurt us. Let me say that one more time because I kind of botched it. He tells us to pray like we need forgiving more than those who hurt us. That we take personal responsibility for the hurt we do to others. Two reasons, right? The first is the one I was just getting on. You're only in control of your own responses in life. You cannot control what is going on to you all the time. You can control some things, but many things you can't. And you have to deal with them. This is why we're so big on developing resilient disciples at Encounter. So that when things come up that you can't control, but are so difficult that your faith gets rocked, you know who you are, that you are built and founded in Christ and it holds you through. That's who we're trying to build. Paul and Silas, they could not control being thrown in jail. But what they could control is the spirit that said, though we're behind bars, we will sing hymns of praise that literally shake the foundations of this jail. The second reason is that forgiveness is just too big a weight for you to bear. It's too much for you. It's too much for me. We're all sinners ourselves. None of us is perfect. We can help call people to justice, but we can't ever pretend we are righteous. We can't ever pretend that we can sit in the place of the judge. This is why so often Jesus warns people about judging. He's like, you want to be very, very careful to take the log out of your own eye before you judge the speck in the other. He doesn't say don't ever judge. He doesn't say don't ever watch and assess what is happening. 
He says, you better make sure you have dealt with your own problems before you consider doing any of this. But thankfully, Jesus Christ is the righteous judge. He's the righteous judge who judges sinners and offers them forgiveness. He shows the way to perpetrators that repentance offers freedom. Repentance offers forgiveness. What about victims? Where's the love and justice of God for victims? Because David hasn't only sinned against God, has he? There's one specific victim who is still alive, and that's Bathsheba. Shouldn't we demand her justice? See, friends, I believe our world has traditionally been complicit in enabling perpetrators to commit injustice. That's been the normal way of the world. And right now, our world bends toward an arc where we currently have no forgiveness for those who seek it for past injustices. So simultaneously, we've been living in a world where we have been creating a system to enable injustice and refusing to offer forgiveness for those who are desperate to return and repent. We do both at the same time. We celebrate when a sinner repents, but we refuse to forgive when that sin is against us. That's really how it goes. But this is the way of Jesus. Jesus calls us to allow ourselves to be sinned against rather than sin through our unforgiveness. Because refusing to forgive somebody is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. It does not work. It changes us. Let me me be really clear on this. Unforgiveness will change you. It will make you harder, bitter, cynical. Uh, You'll be angry, distrusting. This is what unforgiveness does if you do not set people free. Not because they deserve it, but because it is for you to be set free as well. I tell you, it affects not only you, it affects those around us. You know when you spent time with an unforgiving person because you feel exhausted, you feel judged, you feel criticised. You know that feeling? Like, try not to think about that person, but it's all right because we've all been that person as well. And the Bible, as always, is not silent about victims. The God of justice cries out on behalf of the victimised from murdered Abel in Genesis all the way down to the martyrs in the book of Revelation. Thank God that He does not forget the victims. Thank God that He allows them a voice and doesn't overlook evil. We are taught in the Bible that vengeance does not belong to us, but to God because we're not reliable enough to have it in our hands. We're not just enough to hand it out. We are not forgiving enough to offer the right mercy and grace. And we're not pure enough to deserve the right to judge anyone. The line of sin we see in the Bible is not about bad people and good people. It's about dead people and alive people. Sin is not a line that separates good people and bad people. It's a line that cuts through every human heart. Your heart and my heart is penetrated by sin. It is eating us alive perpetrator and victim, we are sinners. Now that doesn't mean victims are complicit in their sin, but as people, we are all sinners. No human being escapes. Romans 3.23 reminds us of this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All except one. Put another way though, we cannot come to church on a Sunday and celebrate the lives transformed in a youth juvenile detention centre and then refuse to forgive those who commit crimes against us. 
we do not get to celebrate with those who celebrate and throw rocks at those who mourn. And some of you have experienced genuine crimes against you. I don't mean like you were upset or offended. Everyone gets that. We need to brush that off, be more resilient. But I mean genuine crime, genuine trauma. It's happened to people in this room. Defrauding, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, blackmail, physical violence. It's really possible. But we are not truly innocent victims. We are both sinner and sinned against. We hold our grief gently because we cause grief to others. And if we don't hold our grief gently, we cause more grief to others. So how, how do victims find hope here on earth if no human being escapes sin? We find hope by modelling ourselves after the one person who did escape sin. Jesus, the rightful King, the judge of all creation, did not abuse His power, but laid it down to serve humanity. Just hear that. The one who has had more power and more agency than anyone in human history is the one that took upon Himself the willingness to be the victim for the crimes of others. Jesus was the only perfect human. He was tortured and killed. He took our place as a victim. Simultaneously took our place by taking the guilt of the perpetrator on Himself out of love for us. And from His place on the cross, the only one who could have pointed at everyone and offered judgment said this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Lord, forgive them. And to the thief that cried out, Lord, would you accept me into your kingdom? He says, you'll be with me in paradise. He heard the heartfelt cry of repentance, not just something that says, I feel guilty, but a man condemned to death hanging on a cross who says, I've got nothing left but you. And Jesus says, you've got me. Come home. He models the way for victims, which is forgiveness. Repentance is the model for a perpetrator. Forgiveness is the model for a victim. Church, if you're holding anything against anybody, any grievance at all, anything that has happened to you in your past that you have just, you just held a little bit against. You're just, you're just a little bit better than that person. You're just, just holding them at arm's length, not just in communication or friendship, but like you're judging them. The hurt done to you in the past is still there. You're not letting it go. If you don't do, forgive them, you reject the forgiveness of God. This is what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. If we can't forgive others, we can't receive the forgiveness of God. Why? Because we place ourselves in the judgment seat and we say, I am now the judge. You are not forgiven. I have made a judgment. And God says, well, if you're in the judgment seat, I guess you don't need the mercy and forgiveness I offer. Stay in the judgment seat by all means. We need forgiveness because we, we can't hold it. We can't hold that burden. You hold a weight above somebody else's head and you crush your own soul. But forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. True forgiveness learns. It doesn't hold against, but it learns. Jesus advises us to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Wise as serpents and innocent of doves. That is, we offer second chances but we do remember what has led us into pain in the past and we are wary to avoid those pitfalls. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. But we are people of forgiveness, people of the second chance. That's true forgiveness learning, but true repentance transforms. 
See, those people who go on sinning in the way they once did, Jesus says, you are not in me. You have no part of my kingdom. If you just feel bad and then go and do it again, show me the fruit of your transformation. He's not saying you are going to be the worst serial killer of all time and I expect you tomorrow to be like, you know, somebody giving out communion at church. That is unrealistic. It requires slow transformation, but you can see fruit over time. When you plant a tree, it doesn't plant fruit the next day, but over time you see growth. You see fruit begin to bud. That is what we need to see if we are showing fruits of repentance. See, guilt and repentance are not the same thing. You feel guilty when you do something bad? Great. That's how you know you did something wrong. But that needs to turn into change, into transformation. The repentant person has been set free from their guilt, but remembers what they did. And as Jesus puts it, those who are being forgiven much, love much. Friends, you have been forgiven much. I have been forgiven much. Do you love much? Do you forgive well? Do you set captives free the way that you have been set free by Jesus? But what if you are the perpetrator? What if there is hidden sin in your heart that you have deliberately kept and not confessed? Now, I don't mean there are those of you in this room that there has been horrific sin in your life that you have confessed. I would say, let go of that in Jesus' name. You are set free. I'm talking about unconfessed sin that you've been hiding, thinking you're hiding it from the Lord, it is killing you, eating you as surely as unforgiveness will eat the victim. Have you confessed your sins? Have you? Like it'll set you free. Have you received that forgiveness of God? Or by holding on to this, do you find you keep going back to the same sorts of patterns of sin? Whether that's judging others or pornography or patterns of addictions with drugs and alcohol It's time to repent, turn around and let Jesus set you free. Let me tell uh, one story and then I'll come to a close. Corey ten Boom, the the beautiful Dutch Christian uh, who set so many Jewish people free during World War II. And she was interred in a concentration camp with her father and her sister because she was uh, smuggling Jewish people across the border into safety. She was an agent of salvation. And when she was in captivity, her father died, her sister died. Why? Simple mistreatment. They weren't beaten, they weren't abused. Well, they were, but not, you know, overtly. It just, they just weren't fed, they weren't cared for, and they died. And only Corey lived. But she remembered all of it. And Jesus, working in her heart, had set her free from the jail and enabled her to continue to praise Him in the worst circumstances, circumstances none of us could possibly imagine. Corey had been through it and her faith had held strong. And as she got to the other side, people began to want to hear her story. And so she began touring the world, telling her story of the grace and mercy of God and the forgiveness that God has offered us, that she is just the same as the people who perpetrated the abuse on them, the Nazis holding her and her family captive. And that's what she told everybody until she had to meet one of her guards. She was giving a speech in Germany, of all places. And somebody came up to her and he's sobbing, sobbing. And he says, Corey, I was one of the guards at the concentration camp. They didn't know each other, but You named the concentration camp. That's where I was at the time you were there. I was a perpetrator to you. 
I'm begging your forgiveness. I'm, I'm turned from my ways. I'm following Jesus with all my life. And he reaches out a hand asking for her to shake his hand. And suddenly it's not just talk anymore. What do you do? What do you do when the person who has hurt you is right in front of you and they are doing in the most authentic, biblical, heartfelt way possible saying, I don't just feel bad, I am repenting. I am turning my life around. I'm on my knees before my victim begging for forgiveness. And Corey realised that she'd been holding this hate in her heart deeper than she thought. She'd come face to face with it suddenly. And after a second, she reaches out, clasps his hand, looks him in the eyes and says, I forgive you, brother. I forgive you. That was a real one. That was hard. I would imagine Corey had to then go home and do a bit of work in her spirit with the Lord after that too. Here's my point. Sin goes through all our hearts and the things that we do make us want to put ourselves in camps of good or bad. Those of us who put ourselves in bad camps where we say we're bad, we've done something wrong and we've taken that upon ourselves to say, this is who I am. God couldn't possibly love someone like me. Guilt begins to stagnate and grow and it turns into shame and shame owns us. But God has come to say, even if you have perpetrated something horrific on someone else, I will set you free. Just come, follow me. On the other side, there are so many of us, we put ourselves in the good camp. I'm a basically good person, we say. Basically what? Compared to who? Compared to how? Under what situations? And for those of us who we would say, I'm basically good, but people actually have taken advantage of me. I would never but people take advantage of me. God comes to say, in your heart is judgment and unforgiveness as it is in every human heart. If you wanna be set free, lay it down, follow me. You gotta lay it down. Maybe the greatest story of all time is the story of the prodigal son, a younger son who goes rogue, but eventually comes back begging for forgiveness. The father welcomes him into his party welcomes him into his family. But the older son who always did the right things refuses to come into the party, refuses to be a part of what God is doing. The danger is that those of us who have experienced victimhood, genuine victimhood, will become the older son, holding judgment, holding bitterness, holding unforgiveness. God's come to set you free from that. But you've got to do the work You've got to ask Him, God, would you set me free? You've got to repent of the sin of unforgiveness. I'm going to finish on the story of Bathsheba because this is a woman who is brushed over throughout history. Really briefly, Bathsheba's story ends when David's story ends. That's what we know of at the end of her story. King David is an old, old man. He's lying in, lying in bed. He's, he's basically incapable of moving anymore. And one of his sons, a guy called Adonijah, is sort of taken over the kingdom. David can't do anything. He's sort of 
lost the plot a bit. And so Adonijah is gathering some people around him. David has this person called Abishag, who was a young virgin, who had been, the kingdom was scoured and she was, she was employed purely to keep him warm at night. And if you think that's a metaphor, it isn't. The Bible was so explicit as saying, they did not know each other sexually. Perhaps David couldn't, I don't know. He was an old guy at this point. But there's this young woman with this very old man as this other man taking over the kingdom. Where's Solomon? Where's Bathsheba? Solomon's meant to be the king. In comes the prophet Nathan again. He says, Bathsheba, what are you doing? Do you know what Adonage is doing? He's taking over the kingdom. You are going to be killed. Solomon's going to be killed. And he is meant to be the one. He's meant to be the one in the line of Jesus. He doesn't say that. He's good, but he's not that good. He is the one from whom David's line is meant to come. What are you doing? You need to advocate on behalf of your son. So Bathsheba finally takes action. She goes into David's, David's room. There quietly is that young woman, Abishag, standing by herself. And she gets down on her knees and she pleads. She says, David, you have said it's meant to go to Solomon. What are you doing? That was your promise. Then Nathan comes in and he says, listen to her. This is what you said. And so David does. He's lost the plot, but not that much. He brings in everyone who's important. He says, Solomon is to be the king. Go and do everything. He doesn't leave his bed. And he sends them out and Solomon is made king. He forgives Adonijah. And we think it's the end of the story, but it's not. David passes away. Adonijah, a little bit after that, comes to Bathsheba. Not to Solomon, Bathsheba. He says, hey, you remember Abishag, that, that young woman, that virgin who was with King David? Her, his concubine, a symbol of his power. Bathsheba's sort of like, yeah, why are, you, why are you talking to me? He's like, what? Can you just go to Solomon? Oh, I just, just really want her. Um, can you go to Solomon and ask him to give her to me? Uh, imagine what this is bringing up for Bathsheba at this point. Just imagine like trauma upon trauma running through her head. And she listens and she goes, okay. And she asks Solomon, her son, who is fortunately the wisest king to ever live. Solomon sees through what Adonijah is doing, a power grab. And this time he is not so forgiving and he executes Adonijah, brings Abishag safely into the folds of the palace where she can be unharassed, untouched. Scholars for centuries have asked this question. How could Bathsheba be so dumb as to go and take, and this is really what they ask, and take Adonijah's request to her son? which would undermine his kingship and endanger a young woman the same way she was endangered. And I think scholars throughout history are so dumb. I don't think a mother or a victim forgets. Forgive, but not forget. Do you think she doesn't know that her son would recognise what was going on? Do you think she wouldn't realise Who could be saved through this? And so Bathsheba, who has been sinned against, who has been victimised, who has been cruelly treated, becomes an agent of salvation for this woman, Abishag. The perpetrator is executed and the victim is set free before anything can happen. Perhaps the only good thing about trauma comes if we use it to work good in the lives of others if we use it to set others free. Church, this is God's call for you tonight. As the band as the band come up, as they play, tonight I want to offer an opportunity and I want to be really clear about what this is and isn't. I want to give an opportunity 
for people who have been holding sin in their heart, not this kind of sin. This is not what this says if you come up tonight. But who have been holding sin in their heart and need to repent it to come up and be forgiven, to let go, to set free. In the same way, those who have been holding unforgiveness in their heart, this is your opportunity to come up, unburden yourself and be set free. Not because this has happened to you. In fact, I would encourage you to probably hold that and to reach out and chat to Jen. She would love to pastorally and personally care for people who have been through that kind of traumatic situation. This is for everyone in the room who as I've been preaching, God's been tapping you on the shoulder and saying, I've got some business to do with you. There's some forgiveness you need to offer people. I've got some business to do with you. There's some sin you will not let go of. I wanna set you free. Would you stand church? as we worship, as we respond. Oh Lord, this is heavy. It's so heavy, so painful to examine these topics. Our heart is ripped in two as we grieve for victims. We're outraged as we hear stories of perpetrators. But God, we have been perpetrator. We have been victim. And you above all else know what this is like because Jesus, you took it all on yourself. You died for our sin. You took the place of the victim. You took the shame of the perpetrator. And Lord, we would just ask right now that you would do a work in our hearts so that the Word would not be fruitless, that it would not return void, that whatever needs to come out of us tonight, whether that's unforgiveness and bitterness, whether that's a brokenness, a repentance, that it would come out, that we would be set free in the Name of Jesus. Amen.